This is Fireside Flock, a cozy reading podcast. Today we cover chapters 28 through 30 of book three of Middlemarch by George Eliot. This episode is a little shorter than usual. I've been stuck in an editing haze for the past week and will continue to be as I continue to churn out audiobooks for Audible. Uh, so I apologize that it's not as uh, lengthy as they usually are, but Hopefully next week I'll be able to churn out something a little bit more as we end book three and go into book four. Without Chapter 28 Mr. and Mrs. Casabon, returning from their wedding journey, arrived at Lowick Manor in the middle of January. A light snow was falling as they descended at the door, and in the morning, when Dorothea passed from her dressing room into the blue-green boudoir that we know of, she saw the long avenue of limes lifting their trunks from a white earth and spreading white branches against the dun and motionless sky. The distant flank shrank in uniform whiteness and low-hanging uniformity of cloud. The very furniture in the room seemed to have shrunk since she saw it before. The stag in the tapestry looked more like a ghost in his ghostly blue-green world. The volumes of polite literature in the bookcase looked more like immovable imitations of books. The bright fire of dry oak boughs burning on the logs seemed an incongruous renewal of life and glow, like the figure of Dorothea herself as she entered, carrying the red leather cases containing the cameos for Celia. She was glowing from her morning toilet as only healthful youth can glow. There was gem-like brightness on her coiled hair and in her hazel eyes. There was warm red life in her lips. Her throat had a breathing whiteness above the differing white of the fur which itself seemed to wind about her neck and cling down her blue-gray pelvis, with a tenderness gathered from her own, a sentient, commingled innocence which kept its loveliness against the crystalline purity of the outdoor snow. As she laid the cameo cases on the table in the bow window, she unconsciously kept her hands on them, immediately absorbed and looking out on the still, white enclosure which made her visible world. Mr. Casabon who had risen early complaining of palpitation, was in the library giving audience to his curate, Mr. Tucker. By and by, Celia would come in her quality of bridesmaid as well as sister, and through the next weeks there would be wedding visits received and given, all in continuance of that transitional life understood to correspond with the excitement of bridal felicity and keeping up the sense of busy ineffectiveness, as of a dream which the dreamer begins to suspect. The duties of her married life, contemplated as so great beforehand, seemed to be shrinking with the furniture and the white vapor-walled landscape. The clear heights where she expected to walk in full communion had become difficult to see, even in her imagination. The delicious repose of the soul on a complete superior had been shaken into uneasy effort and alarmed with dim presentiment. When would the days begin of that active, wifely devotion which was to strengthen her husband's life and exalt her own? Never, perhaps, as she had preconceived them, but somehow, still somehow, in this solemnly pledged union of her life, duty would present itself in some new form of inspiration and give a new meaning to wifely love. Meanwhile, there was the snow and the low arch of dun vapor. There was the stifling oppression of that gentleman's world, where everything was done for her and none asked for her aid where the sense of connection with a manifold, pregnant existence had to be kept up painfully as an inward vision, instead of coming from without in claims that would have shaped her energies. What shall I do? Whatever you please, my dear. 
that had been her brief history since she had left off learning morning lessons and practicing silly rhythms on the hated piano. Marriage, which was to bring guidance into worthy and imperative occupation, had not yet freed her from the gentlewoman's oppressive liberty. It had not even filled her leisure with the ruminant joy of unchecked tenderness. Her blooming, full-pulsed youth stood there in a moral imprisonment which made itself one with the chill, colorless, narrowed landscape, with the shrunken furniture, the never-read books, and the ghastly stag in a pale, fantastic world that seemed to be vanishing from the daylight. In the first minutes when Dorothea looked out, she felt nothing but the dreary oppression. Then came a keen remembrance, and, turning away from the window, she walked round the room. The ideas and hopes which were living in her mind when she first saw this room nearly three months before were present now only as memories. She judged them as we judge transient and departed things. All existence seemed to beat with a lower pulse than her own, and her religious faith was a solitary cry the struggle out of a nightmare in which every object was withering and shrinking away from her. Each remembered thing in the room was disenchanted, was deadened as an unlit transparency, till her wandering gaze came to the group of miniatures, and there at last she saw something which had gathered new breath and meaning. It was the miniature of Mr. Casabon's Aunt Julia, who had made the unfortunate marriage of Will Ladislaw's grandmother. Dorothea could fancy that it was alive now, the delicate woman's face which yet had a headstrong look, a peculiarity difficult to interpret. Was it only her friends who thought her marriage unfortunate, or did she herself find it out to be a mistake and taste the salt bitterness of her tears in the merciful silence of the night? What breaths of experience Dorothea seemed to have passed over since she first looked at this miniature. She felt a new companionship with it, as if it had an ear for her and could see how she was looking at it. Here was a woman who had known some difficulty about marriage. Nay, the colors deepened, the lips and chin seemed to get larger, the hair and eyes seemed to be sending out light, the face was masculine and beamed on her with that full gaze which tells her on whom it falls that she is too interesting for the slightest movement of her eyelid to pass unnoticed and uninterpreted. The vivid presentation came like a pleasant glow to Dorothea. She felt herself smiling and, turning from the miniature, sat down and looked up as if she were again talking to a figure in front of her. But the smile disappeared as she went on meditating, and at last she said aloud, Oh, it was cruel to speak so. How sad! How dreadful! She rose quickly and went out of the room, hurrying along the corridor, with the irresistible impulse to go and see her husband and inquire if she could do anything for him. Perhaps Mr. Tucker was gone and Mr. Costabon was alone in the library. She felt as if all her morning's gloom would vanish if she could see her husband glad because of her presence. But when she reached the head of the dark oak, there was Celia coming up, and below there was Mr. Brooke, exchanging welcomes and congratulations with Mr. Casabon. Dodo, said Celia, in her quiet staccato, then kissed her sister, whose arms encircled her and said no more. I think they both cried a little in a furtive manner, while Dorothea ran downstairs to greet her uncle. I need not ask how you are, my dear, said Mr. Brooke, after kissing her forehead. Rome has agreed with you, I see. Happiness, frescoes, the antique, that sort of thing. Well, it's very pleasant to have you back again, and you understand all about art now, eh? But Casabon is a little pale, I tell him, a little pale, you know. Studying hard in his holidays is carrying it rather too far. I overdid it at one time. Mr. Brooke still held Dorothea's hand but had turned his face to Mr. Casabon. 
about topography, ruins, temples. I thought I had a clue, but I saw it would carry me too far and nothing might come of it. You may go any length in that sort of thing and nothing may come of it, you know. Dorothy's eyes also were turned up to her husband's face, with some anxiety at the idea that those who saw him afresh after absence might be aware of signs which she had not noticed. Nothing to alarm you, my dear, said Mr. Brooke, observing her expression. A little English beef and mutton will soon make a difference. It was all very well to look pale, sitting for the portrait of Aquinas, you know. We got your letter just in time. But Aquinas, now, he was a little too subtle, wasn't he? Does anybody read Aquinas? He is not indeed an author adapted to superficial minds, said Mr. Casabon, meeting these timely questions with dignified patience. You would like coffee in your own room, uncle? said Dorothea, coming to the rescue. Yes, and you must go to Celia. She has great news to tell you, you know. I leave it all to her. The blue-green boudoir looked much more cheerful when Celia was seated there in a palace, exactly like her sister's, surveying the cameos with a placid satisfaction, while the conversation passed on to other topics. Do you think it nice to go to Rome on a wedding journey? said Celia, with her ruddy, delicate blush, which Dorothea was used to on the smallest occasions. It would not suit all. Not you, dear, for example, said Dorothea quietly. No one would ever know what she thought of a wedding journey to Rome. Mrs. Cadwallader says it is nonsense, people going a long journey when they're married. She says they get tired to death of each other and can't quarrel comfortably as they would at home. And Lady Chetham says she went to Bath. Celia's color changed again and again, seemed to come and go with tidings from the heart, as that a running messenger had been. It must mean more than Celia's blushing usually did. Celia, has something happened? said Dorothea in a tone full of sisterly feeling. Have you really any great news to tell me? It was because you went away, Dodo. Then there was nobody but me for Sir James to talk to, said Celia, the certain roguishness in her eyes. I understand. It is as I used to hope and believe, said Dorothea, taking her sister's face between her hands and looking at her half anxiously. Celia's marriage seemed more serious than it used to do. It was only three days ago, said Celia, and Lady Chetham is very kind. And you were very happy? Yes. Yes. We're not going to be married yet, because everything is to be got ready, and I don't want to be married so very soon, because I think it is nice to be engaged, and we shall be married all our lives after. I do believe you could not marry better, Kitty. Sir James is a good, honorable man, said Dorothea warmly. He has gone on with the cottages, Dodo. He will tell you about them when he comes. Shall you be glad to see him? Of course I shall. How can you ask me? Only I was afraid you would be getting so learned, said Celia, regarding Mr. Casabon's learning as a kind of damp which might in due time saturate chapter 29. One morning, some weeks after her arrival at Lowick, Dorothea, but why always Dorothea? Was her point of view the only possible one with regard to this marriage? I protest against all our interest, all our effort at understanding being given to the young skins that look blooming in spite of trouble. For these too will get faded, and will know the older and more eating griefs which we are helping to neglect. In spite of the blinking eyes and white moles objectionable to Celia, and the want of muscular curve which was morally painful to Sir James, Mr. Casabon had an intense consciousness within him, and was spiritually a-hungered like the rest of us. He had done nothing exceptional in marrying, nothing but what society sanctions and considers an occasion for wreaths and bouquets. It had occurred to him that he must not any longer defer his intention of matrimony, 
and he had reflected that in taking a wife, a man of good position should expect and carefully choose a blooming young lady, the younger the better, because more educable and submissive, of a rank equal to his own, of religious principles, virtuous disposition, and good understanding. On such a young lady he would make handsome settlements, and he would neglect no arrangement for her happiness. In return he should receive family pleasures and leave behind him that copy of himself which seemed so urgently required of a man to the sonneteers of the sixteenth century. Times had altered since then, and no sonneteer had insisted on Mr. Casaubon's leaving a copy of himself. Moreover, he had not yet succeeded in issuing copies of his mythological key, but he had always intended to acquit himself by marriage, and the sense that he was fast leaving the years behind him, that the world was getting dimmer and that he felt lonely, was a reason to him for losing no more time in overtaking domestic delights before they, too, were left behind by the years. And when he had seen Dorothea, he believed that he had found even more than he demanded. She might really be such a helpmate to him as would enable him to dispense with a hired secretary, an aid which Mr. Casaubon had never yet employed and had a suspicious dread of. Mr. Casaubon was nervously conscious that he was expected to manifest a powerful mind. Providence, in its kindness, had supplied him with the wife he needed, a wife, a modest young lady, with the purely appreciative, unambitious abilities of her sex, is sure to think her husband's mind powerful. Whether Providence had taken equal care of Miss Brooke in presenting her with Mr. Casaubon was an idea which could hardly occur to him. Society never made the preposterous demand that a man should think as much about his own qualifications for making a charming girl happy as he thinks of hers for making himself happy, as if a man could choose not only his wife, but his wife's husband, or as if he were bound to provide charms for his posterity in his own person. When Dorothea accepted him with effusion, that was only natural, and Mr. Casaubon believed that his happiness was going to begin. He had not had much foretaste of happiness in his previous life. To know intense joy without a strong bodily frame, one must have an enthusiastic soul. Mr. Casaubon had never had a strong bodily frame, and his soul was sensitive without being enthusiastic. It was too languid to thrill out of self-consciousness into passionate delight. It went on fluttering in the swampy ground where it had hatched, thinking of its wings and never flying. His experience was of that pitiable kind which shrinks from pity and fears most of all that it should be known. It was that proud, narrow sensitiveness which has not mass enough to spare for transformation into sympathy and quivers thread-like and small currents of self-preoccupation, or at best, of an egotistic scrupulosity. And Mr. Casaubon had many scruples. He was capable of a severe self-restraint. He was resolute in being a man of honor according to the code. He would be unimpeachable by any recognized opinion. In conduct, these ends had been attained, but the difficulty of making his key to all mythologies unimpeachable weighed like lead upon his mind, and the pamphlets, or peroga, as he called them, by which he tested his public and deposited small monumental records of his march, were far from having been seen in all their significance. He suspected the archdeacon of not having read them. He was in painful doubt as to what was really thought of them by the leading minds of Brasnos, and bitterly convinced that his old acquaintance Carp had been the writer of that depreciatory recension which was kept locked in a small drawer of Mr. Casaubon's desk, and also in a dark closet of his verbal memory. 
These were heavy impressions to struggle against, and brought that melancholy embitterment which is the consequence of all excessive claim. Even his religious faith wavered with his wavering trust in his own authorship, and the consolations of the Christian hope in immortality seemed to lean on the immortality of the still unwritten key to all mythologies. For my part, I am very sorry for him. It is an uneasy lot at best, to be what we call highly taught and yet not to enjoy, to be present at this great spectacle of life and never to be liberated from a small, hungry, shivering self, never to be fully possessed by the glory we behold, never to have our consciousness rapturously transformed into the vividness of a thought, the ardor of a passion, the energy of an action, but always to be scholarly and uninspired, ambitious and timid, scrupulous and dim-sighted. Becoming a dean or even a bishop would make little difference, I fear, to Mr. Casabon's uneasiness. Doubtless some ancient Greek had observed that behind the big mask and the speaking trumpet there must always be our poor little eyes peeping as usual and our timorous lips more or less under anxious control. To this mental estate mapped out a quarter of a century before, the sensibilities thus fenced in, Mr. Casabon had thought of annexing happiness with the lovely young bride, but even before marriage, as we've seen, he found himself under a new depression in the consciousness that the new bliss was not blissful to him. Inclination yearned back to its old, easier custom, and the deeper he went in domesticity, the more did the sense of acquitting himself in acting with propriety predominate over any old satisfaction. Marriage, like religion and erudition, nay, like authorship itself, was fated to become an outward requirement, and Edward Casabon was bent on fulfilling unimpeachably all requirements. Even drawing Dorothea into use in his study, according to his own intention before marriage, was an effort which he was always tempted to defer, and but for her pleading insistence it might never have begun. But she had succeeded in making it easier to define because Mr. Casabon had adopted an immediate intention. But she had succeeded in making it a matter of course that she should take her place at an early hour in the library and have work either of reading aloud or copying assigned her. The work had been easier to define because Mr. Casabon had adopted an immediate intention. There was to be a new paragon, a small monograph on some lately traced indications concerning the Egyptian mysteries whereby certain assertions of Warburton's could be corrected. References were extensive even here, but not altogether shoreless and the sentences were actually to be written in the shape wherein they would be scanned by Brasenose and a less formidable posterity. These minor monumental productions were always exciting to Mr. Casabon. Digestion was made difficult by the interface of citations, or by the rivalry of dialectical phrases ringing against each other in his brain, and from the first there was to be a Latin dedication about which everything was uncertain except that it was not to be addressed to Carp. It was a poisonous regret to Mr. Casabon that he had once addressed a dedication to Carp, in which he had numbered that member of the animal kingdom among the viros nulloevo perituros, a mistake which would infallibly lay the dedicator open to ridicule in the next age, and might even be chuckled over by Pike and Tench in the present. Thus Mr. Casabon was in one of his busiest epochs, and as I began to say a little while ago, Dorothea joined him early in the library where she had breakfasted alone. Celia at this time was on a second visit to Lowick, probably the last before her marriage, and was in the drawing-room expecting Sir James. Dorothea had learned to read the signs of her husband's mood, and she saw that the morning had become more foggy there during the last hour. 
She was going silently to her desk when he said, in that distant tone which implied that he was discharging a disagreeable duty, Dorothea, here's a letter for you, which was enclosed in one addressed to me. It was a letter of two pages, and she immediately looked at the signature. Mr. Ladislaw, what can he have to say to me? she exclaimed in a tone of pleased surprise. But, she added, looking at Mr. Casabon, I can imagine what he's written to you about. You can, if you please, read the letter, said Mr. Casabon, severely pointing to it with his pen and not looking at her. But I may as well say beforehand that I must decline the proposal it contains to pay a visit here. I trust I may be excused for desiring an interval of complete freedom from such distractions have been hitherto inevitable, and especially from guests whose desultory vivacity makes their presence a fatigue. There had been no clashing of temper between Dorothea and her husband since that little explosion in Rome, which had left such strong traces in her mind that it had been easier ever since to quell emotion than to incur the consequence of venting it. But this ill-tempered anticipation that she could desire visits which might be disagreeable to her husband, this gratuitous defense of himself against selfish complaint on her part, was too sharp a sting to be meditated on until after it had been resented. Dorothea had thought that she could have been patient with John Milton, but she had never imagined him behaving in this way, and for a moment Mr. Casabon seemed to be stupidly undiscerning and odiously unjust. Pity, that newborn babe which was by and by to rule many a storm within her, did not stride the blast on this occasion. With her first words uttered in a tone that shook him, she startled Mr. Casabon into looking at her and meeting the flash of her eyes. Why do you attribute to me a wish for anything that would annoy you? You speak to me as if I were something you had to contend against. Wait at least till I appear to consult my own pleasure apart from yours. Dorothea, you are hasty, answered Mr. Casabon nervously. Decidedly, this woman was too young to be in the formidable level of wifehood, unless she had been pale and featureless and taken everything for granted. I think it was you who were first hasty in your false suppositions about my feeling, said Dorothea in the same tone. The fire was not dissipated yet, and she thought it was ignoble in her husband not to apologize to her. We will, if you please, say no more on this subject, Dorothea. I have neither leisure nor energy for this kind of debate. Here Mr. Casabon dipped his pen and made as if he would return to his writing, though his hand trembled so much that the words seemed to be written in an unknown character. There are answers which, in turning away wrath, only send it to the other end of the room, and to have a discussion coolly waived when you feel that justice is all on your own side is even more exasperating in marriage than in philosophy. Dorothea left Ladislaw's two letters unread on her husband's writing-table and went to her own place. The scorn and indignation within her rejecting the reading of these letters, just as we hurl away any trash towards which we seem to have been suspected of mean cupidity. She did not in the least divine the subtle sources of her husband's bad temper about these letters. She only knew that they had caused him to offend her. She began to work at once, and her hand did not tremble. On the contrary, in writing out the quotations which had been given to her the day before, she felt that she was forming her letters beautifully, and it seemed to her that she saw the construction of the Latin she was copying, and which she was beginning to understand, more clearly than usual. In her indignation there was a sense of superiority, but it went out for the present in firmness of stroke, and did not compress itself into an inward articulate voice pronouncing the once affable archangel a poor creature. There had been this apparent quiet for half an hour, and Dorothea had not looked away from her own table, when she heard the loud bang of a book on the floor, 
and turning quickly saw Mr. Casabon on the library steps, clinging forward as if he were in some bodily distress. She started up and bounded towards him in an instant. He was evidently in great straits for breath. Jumping on a stool, she got close to his elbow and said with her whole soul melted into tender alarm, Can you lean on me, dear? He was still for two or three minutes, which seemed endless to her, unable to speak or move, gasping for breath. When at last he descended the three steps and fell backward in the large chair, which Dorothea had drawn close to the foot of the ladder, he no longer gasped, but seemed helpless and about to faint. Dorothea rang the bell violently, and presently Mr. Casabon was helped to the couch. He did not faint and was gradually reviving when Sir James Chetham came in, having been met in the hall with the news that Mr. Casabon had had a fit in the library. Good God, this is just what might have been expected, was his immediate thought. If his prophetic soul had been urged to particularize, it seemed to him that fits would have been the definite expression alighted upon. He asked his informant, the butler, whether the doctor had been sent for. The butler never knew his master to want the doctor before, but would it not be right to send for a physician? When Sir James entered the library, however, Mr. Casabon could make some signs of his usual politeness, and Dorothea, who in the reaction from her first terror had been kneeling and sobbing by his side, now rose and herself proposed that someone should ride off for a medical man. "'I recommend you to send for Lydgate,' said Sir James. "'My mother has called him in, and she has found him uncommonly clever. She's had a poor opinion of the physician since my father's death.' Dorothea appealed to her husband, and he made a silent sign of approval. So Mr. Lydgate was sent for, and he came wonderfully soon, for the messenger, who was Sir James Chetham's man and knew Mr. Lydgate, met him leading his horse along the Lowick Road and giving his arm to Miss Vincy. Celia in the drawing-room had known nothing of the trouble till Sir James told her of it. After Dorothy's account, he no longer considered the illness a fit, but still something of that nature. "'Poor dear Dodo! How dreadful!' said Celia, feeling as much grieved as her own perfect happiness would allow. Her little hands were clasped and enclosed by Sir James as a bud is enfolded by a liberal calyx. "'It is very shocking that Mr. Casabon should be ill, but I never did like him.' and I think he is not half fond enough of Dorothea, and he ought to be, for I am sure no one else would have had him. Do you think they would? I always thought it a horrible sacrifice of your sister, said Sir James. Yes, but poor Dodo never did do what other people do, and I think she never will. She is a noble creature, said the loyal-hearted Sir James. He had just had a fresh impression of this kind, as he had seen Dorothea stretching her tender arm under her husband's neck, and looking at him with unspeakable sorrow. He did not know how much penitence there was in the sorrow. "'Yes,' said Celia, thinking it was very well for Sir James to say so, but he would not have been comfortable with Dodo. "'Shall I go to her? Could I help her, do you think?' "'I think it will be well for you just to go and see her before Lydgate comes,' said Sir James magnanimously. "'Only don't stay long.' While Celia was gone, he walked up and down, remembering what he had originally felt about Dorothy's engagement, and feeling a revival of his disgust at Mr. Brooks' indifference. If Cadwallader, if everyone else had regarded the affair as he, Sir James, had done, the marriage might have been hindered. It was wicked to let a young girl blindly decide her fate in that way, without any effort to save her. Sir James had long ceased to have any regrets on his own account. His heart was satisfied with his engagement to Celia but he had a chivalrous nature. Was not the disinterested service of woman along the ideal glories of old chivalry? His disregarded love had not turned to bitterness. Its death had made sweet odors. 
floating memories that clung with a consecrating effect to Dorothea. He could remain her brotherly friend, interpreting her actions with generous trustfulness. Chapter 30 Mr. Casabon had no second attack of equal severity with the first, and in a few days began to recover his usual condition. But Lydgate seemed to think the case worth a great deal of attention. He not only used his stethoscope, which had not become a matter of course of practice at that time, but sat quietly by his patient and watched him. To Mr. Casabon's questions about himself, he replied that the source of the illness was the common error of intellectual men, a too eager and monotonous application. The remedy was to be satisfied with moderate work and to seek variety of relaxation. Mr. Brooke, who sat by on one occasion, suggested that Mr. Casabon should go fishing, as Cadwallader did, and have a turning room, make toys, table legs, and that kind of thing. In short, you recommend me to anticipate the arrival of my second childhood, said poor Mr. Casabon with some bitterness. These things, he added, looking at Lydgate, would be to me such relaxation as toe-picking is to prisoners in a house of correction. I confess, said Lydgate, smiling, amusement is rather an unsatisfactory prescription. It is something like telling people to keep up their spirits. Perhaps I had better say that you must submit to be mildly bored rather than to go on working. Yes, yes, said Mr. Brooke. Get Dorothea to play backgammon with you in the evenings, and shuttlecock. Now, I don't know a finer game than shuttlecock for the daytime. I remember it all the fashion. To be sure, your eyes might not stand that, Gosbon, but you must unbend, you know. Why, you might take to some light study, conchology. Now, I always think that must be a light study. Or get Dorothea to read you light things. Smollett, Roderick Random, Humphrey Clinker. They're a little broad, but she may read anything now she's married, you know. I remember they made me laugh uncommonly. There's a droll bit about a postillion's breeches. We have no such humor now. I've gone through all these things, but they might be rather new to you. As new as eating thistles would have been an answer to represent Mr. Casabon's feelings. But he only bowed resignedly, with due respect to his wife's uncle, and observed that doubtless the work they had mentioned had served as a resource to a certain order of minds. "'You see,' said the able magistrate to Lydgate, when they were outside the door, "'Casbon has been a little narrow. It leaves him rather at a loss when you forbid him his particular work, which I believe is something very deep indeed, in the line of research, you know. I would never give way to that. I was always versatile.' But a clergyman is tied a little tight. If they would make him a bishop, now, he did a very good pamphlet for Peel. He would have more movement than more show. He might get a little flesh. But I recommend you to talk to Mrs. Casabon. She's clever enough for anything, is my niece. Tell her her husband wants liveliness, diversion. Put her on amusing tactics. Without Mr. Brooks' advice, Lydgate had determined on speaking to Dorothea. She had not been present while her uncle was throwing out his pleasant suggestions as to the mode in which life at Lowick might be enlivened, but she was usually by her husband's side, and the unaffected signs of intense anxiety in her face and voice about whatever touched his mind or health made a drama which Lydgate was inclined to watch. He said to himself that he was only doing right in telling her the truth about her husband's probable future. But he certainly thought also that it would be too interesting to talk confidentially with her. A medical man likes to make psychological observations, and sometimes in the pursuit of such studies is too easily tempted into monotonous prophecy, which life and death easily set at naught. Lydgate had often been satirical on this gratuitous prediction, and he meant now to be guarded. 
He asked for Mrs. Casabon, but being told that she was out walking, he was going away, when Dorothea and Celia appeared, both glowing from their struggle with the March wind. When Lydgate begged to speak with her alone, Dorothea opened the library door, which happened to be the nearest, thinking of nothing at the moment but what he might have to say about Mr. Casabon. It was the first time she had entered this room since her husband had been taken ill, and the servant had chosen not to open the shutters, but there was light enough to read by but there was light enough to read by from the narrow upper panes of the windows. "'You will not mind this sombre light,' said Dorothea, standing in the middle of the room. "'Since you forbade books, the library has been out of the question. But Mr. Casabon will soon be here again, I hope. Is he not making progress?' "'Yes, much more rapid progress than I at first expected. Indeed, he's already nearly in his usual state of health.' "'You do not fear that the illness will return?' said Dorothea whose quick ear had detected some significance in Lydgate's tone. Such cases are peculiarly difficult to pronounce upon, said Lydgate. The only point on which I can be confident is that it will be desirable to be very watchful on Mr. Casabon's account, lest he should in any way strain his nervous power. I beseech you to speak quite plainly, said Dorothea, in an imploring tone. I cannot bear to think that there might be something which I did not know, and which, if I had known it, would have made me act differently. The words came out like a cry. It was evident that they were the voice of some mental experience which lay not very far off. Sit down, she added, placing herself on the nearest chair and throwing off her bonnet and gloves with an instinctive discarding of formality where a great question of destiny was concerned. What you say now justifies my own view, said Lydgate. I think it is one's function as a medical man to hinder regrets of that sort as far as possible but I beg you to observe that Mr. Casabon's case is precisely of the kind in which the issue is the most difficult to pronounce upon. He may possibly live for fifteen years or more, without much worse health than he has had hitherto. Dorothea had turned very pale, and when Lydgate paused, she said in a low tone, You mean if we are very careful? Yes, careful against mental agitation of all kinds, and against excessive application. He would be miserable if he had to give up his work, said Dorothea with a quick provision of that wretchedness. I'm aware of that. The only course is to try by all means, direct and indirect, to moderate and vary his occupations. With a happy concurrence of circumstances, there is, as I said, no immediate danger from that affection of the heart, which I believe to have been the cause of his late attack. On the other hand, it is possible that the disease may develop itself more rapidly. It is one of those cases in which death is sometimes sudden, Nothing should be neglected which might be affected by such an issue. There was silence for a few moments, while Dorothea sat as if she had been turned to marble, though the life within her was so intense that her mind had never before swept in brief time over an equal range of scenes and motives. Help me, pray, she said at last, in the same low tone as before. Tell me what I can do. What do you think of foreign travel? You've been lately in Rome, I think. The memories which made this resource utterly hopeless were a new current that shook Dorothea out of her pallid immobility. Oh, that would not do. It would be worse than anything, she said with a more childlike despondency while the tears rolled down. Nothing will be of any use that he does not enjoy. I wish that I could have spared you this pain, said Lydgate, deeply touched yet wondering about her marriage. Women just like Dorothea had not entered into his traditions. It was right of you to tell me. I thank you for telling me the truth. I wish you to understand that I shall not say anything to enlighten Mr. Casabon himself. I think it desirable for him to know nothing more than that he must not overwork himself and must observe certain rules. 
Anxiety of any kind would be precisely the most unfavorable condition for him. Lydgate rose, and Dorothea mechanically rose at the same time, unclasping her cloak and throwing it off as if it stifled her. He was bowing and quitting her, when an impulse which, if she had been alone, would have turned into a prayer, made her say with the sob in her voice, Oh, you are a wise man, are you not? You know all about life and death. Advise me. Think what I can do. He's been laboring all his life and looking forward. He minds about nothing else. Then I mind about nothing else. For years after, Lydgate remembered the impression produced in him by this involuntary appeal, this cry from soul to soul without other consciousness than their moving with kindred natures in the same embroiled medium, the same trubulous, fitfully illuminated life. But what could he say now except that he should see Mr. Casabon again tomorrow? When he was gone, Dorothea's tears gushed forth and relieved her stifling oppression. Then she dried her eyes, reminded that her distress must not be betrayed to her husband, and looked round the room, thinking that she must order the servant to attend to it as usual, since Mr. Casabon might now at any moment wish to enter. On his writing-table there were letters which had lain untouched since the morning when he was taken ill, and among them, as Dorothea well remembered, there were young Ladislaw's letters, the one addressed to her still unopened. The associations of these letters had been the more painful by that sudden attack of illness, which she had felt that the agitation caused by her anger might have helped to bring on. It would be time enough to read them when they were again thrust upon her, and she had had no inclination to fetch them from the library. But now it occurred to her that they should be put out of her husband's sight. Whatever might have been the sources of his annoyance about them, he must, if possible, not be annoyed again. And she ran her eyes first over the letter addressed to him, to assure herself whether or not it would be necessary to write in order to hinder the offensive visit. Will wrote from Rome, and began by saying that his obligations to Mr. Casabon were too deep for all thanks not to seem impertinent. It was plain that if he were not grateful, he must be the poorest-spirited rascal who had ever found a generous friend. To expand in wordy thanks would be like saying, I'm honest. But Will had come to perceive that his defects, defects which Mr. Casabon had himself often pointed to, needed for their correction that more strenuous position which his relative's generosity had hitherto prevented from being inevitable. He trusted that he should make the best return, if return were possible, by showing the effectiveness of the education for which he was indebted, and by ceasing in future to need any diversion towards himself of funds on which others might have a better claim. He was coming to England to try his fortune, as many other young men were obliged to do whose only capital was in their brains. His friend Norman had desired him to take the charge of the dispute, the picture painted for Mr. Casabon with whose permission, and Mrs. Casabon's, Will would convey it to Lowick in person. A letter addressed to the post restant in Paris within the fortnight would hinder him, if necessary, from arriving at an inconvenient moment. He enclosed a letter to Mrs. Casabon in which he continued a discussion about art, begun with her in Rome. Opening her own letter, Dorothea saw that it was a lively continuation of his remonstrance with her fanatical sympathy and her want of sturdy, neutral delight in things as they were, an outpouring of his young vivacity which it was impossible to read just now. She had immediately to consider what was to be done about the other letter. There was still time, perhaps, to prevent Will from coming to Lowick. Dorothea ended by giving the letter to her uncle, who was still in the house, and begging him to let Will know that Mr. Casabon had been ill and that his health would not allow the reception of any visitors. No one more ready than Mr. Brooke to write a letter. His only difficulty was to write a short one, and his ideas in this case expanded over the three large pages in the inward folding. He had simply said to Dorothea, To be sure, I will write, my dear, 
He's a very clever young fellow, this young Ladislaw. I dare say will be a rising young man. It's a good letter. Marks his sense of things, you know. However, I will tell him about Casabon. But the end of Mr. Brooks's pen was a thinking organ, evolving sentences, especially of a benevolent kind, before the rest of his mind could well overtake them. It expressed regrets and proposed remedies which, when Mr. Brooke read them, seemed felicitously worded, surprisingly the right thing, and determined a sequel which he had never before thought of. In this case, his pen found it such a pity young Ladislaw should not have come into the neighborhood just at that time, in order that Mr. Brooke might make his acquaintance more fully, that they might go over the long-neglected Italian drawings together. It also felt such an interest in a young man who was starting in life with a stock of ideas, that by the end of the second page it had persuaded Mr. Brooke to invite young Ladislaw, since he could not be received at Lowick, to come to Tipton Grange. Why not? They could find a great many things to do together, and this was a period of peculiar growth. The political horizon was expanding, and, in short, Mr. Brooke's pen went off into a little speech which it had lately reported for that imperfectly edited organ, the Middlemarch Pioneer. While Mr. Brooke was sealing his letter, he felt elated with an influx of dim projects, a young man capable of putting ideas into form, the pioneer purchased to clear the pathway for a new candidate, documents utilized. Who knew what might come of it all? Since Celia was going to marry immediately, it would be very pleasant to have a young fellow at table with him, at least for a time. But he went away without telling Dorothea what he had put into the letter, for she was engaged with her husband, and, in fact, these things were of no importance to her. 